right? Uh, Revelation 3 is where I think the Lord led me, like maybe so bold. <laughs> anyway, that's what I've been thinking about a little bit. The last, the Revelation uh, 2 and 3 are the seven letters to the seven churches, and there have been people that have proposed that the seven churches uh, correlate with seven non-distinct ages or uh, periods of time in the church age. So that the first letter was written to the church at Ephesus, and uh, that that some of the things that he talks about there correlates with things that the early church faced. And each progressive church up until this last church in chapter 3, the church of Laodicea, then proposed would be the one that would correlate with the church in today's age as we look forward and anticipate the Lord's return. So I want to think about it from that perspective then that this is something that applies directly to the church today and perhaps even to us or to me is really how I was looking at it, how this would apply to me. So we'll get the letter really quick. Uh, it starts in verse 14 of Revelation 3. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these, thing, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say... I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Now as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. To him that overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is a rather ominous letter because he talks about vomiting out of his mouth like like you would spew water. He talks about hot and cold at the beginning, and there have been people that have pointed out uh, that have pointed out that the city of Laodicea had two pipes that carried water from springs into the city, and one was a cold spring and the other one was a hot spring. So some days you could take a hot shower, some days you could take a cold drink. And so but the idea was that they would have an understanding of what it would be like to have this cold pipe and this hot pipe come to the city and the cold has lost all its coldness and the pot has lost all its hotness and what you're left with is just this lukewarm water. And I've had this happen from time to time when one of the kids fills up the, the pitcher of water and puts it on the table and I fill up my cup and it's all lukewarm. If they didn't let the faucet run long enough to where it got cold water, you get this lukewarm water and it's not pleasing. Just gonna go ahead and say it. it's not Something I appreciate. It's worse when they put salt in there, <laughs> which has also happened. Uh, but that's what he's getting is that when you, that sense of when you expect a hot drink or a cold drink and you get this room temperature drink. It's you want to you, your initial reaction if you're not respecting it is you want to spit it out, and that's what he's saying. I'd like to spit you out. 
Uh, I think a lot of people have focused in the past trying to understand what is a cold Christian versus what is a hot Christian. I don't, I kind of think that that might not be his focus. The focus is he wants to spew you out, which is really ominous when you think about that. That may correlate to the church today, like he wants to spew the church today out and why. And so he explains why. We don't have to, we may have to guess what cold and hot means, but we don't have to guess why he finds the, the Laodicean church distasteful. He says, in verse 17, it's because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. Now, interestingly enough, that definitely correlates with the church today. The church today has more money and wealth. doesn't matter which denomination you look at, whether you're looking at uh, conservative evangelicals or Baptists or you name it, there's a lot of money. And as uh, as one who works in the building construction, I get involved in church, you know, building different commercial buildings, including churches. It is a staggering amount of money how much they put in, especially sound systems, fog machines, and those kinds of worship-related stuff. Expensive. Church is rich today. And it's, I don't think it's the wealth that is necessarily the problem. It's the part where they say, we have need of nothing. And then their ignorance that they don't realize that they're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They think they've got it together, but the reality is that when the Lord looks at them, he says, you guys are like, it's like you've got a big uh, screen in front of you that has your image on it, and you look all good and fancy, but behind the screen, you're, you're like a poor, naked beggar. You're in bad shape, and you don't even seem to realize it. You say, I have need of nothing. I look at you and say, you have need of a lot. You, you have nothing. And what, so then the question is, what does he mean by this? He tells them, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire. And I don't know exactly what he's talking about here, but I do know that another place he talks about buying the truth and selling it not. So I'm wondering if maybe he's referring to the truth as a gold that is refined in fire. No, no. The white garments, we can easily guess that the white garments would be the righteousness of the saints, you know, to obtain righteousness from the Lord, which is interesting. Instead of making your own garments to obtain them from the Lord, I suppose is what he's talking about. Because he says you got nakedness, you need to have your nakedness covered. Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Like, you, you don't see clearly. Clearly they don't see clearly. They think they're wealthy, and they're not. So they need some something to clarify their vision so they can actually uh, accurately assess their, their situation. And then he tells them, you know, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. It almost sounds like the closer you get to the Lord, the more he rebukes and chastens you are. <laughs> You, we think today that the closer you get to the Lord, the better off your life is going to be. The more happiness, the joy, the peace, and all the rest of the stuff that you're going to have. But he says, you know, if I love you, I'm going to rebuke and chasten you. I mean, you're going to be finding out that you've got issues. You say you're wealthy, you have need of nothing. I look at you and I say you need a lot of rebuke because you are, the way you are uh, needs a lot of correction. And then he says, uh, in verse 20, he says, I stand at the door and knock, which is, people have pointed out that this is a very odd position for the Lord to be in. You've got the church, and you've got the Lord on the outside, and he's knocking on the door. 
you know, usually that we picture the idea of the church gathered with the Lord in our midst. When he's, he's outside knocking. But he's got the promise that if anybody hears my voice and they, they come out, I will fellowship with them. I don't go right, we're going to dine together. It's life together. I mean, I'm, I'm not, he doesn't hate them. He doesn't want to, yes, the, the, their attitude and thinking that they have everything that they need when they don't makes them want to spew them out of their mouth. But if there's somebody who will listen, I mean, that's why he's standing there knocking. He wants them close. It's not a bitter hatred. It's a sorrow of love. So, but I'm trying to understand what does he mean by this, and what is he actually driving at? How is it that the church could reach it? I mean, we certainly see today the church has a lot, uh, but what does it mean to uh, feel like you have everything, or all that you need? That you need nothing. What is that? So, what I, that rebuke in the background, I went to Colossians, the Epistle of Colossians, and that's where I would like to spend a lot of our time then this morning. And the reason is in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I want you to know what great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And then at the end of the epistle, he says in chapter 4, verse 16, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is, it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from the Laodiceans. So he connects that church of Laodicea to this epistle of the Colossians. We don't have an epistle to the Laodiceans, but this one apparently is very much linked. So I thought, well, maybe he's got something in here then that would apply directly to the church of the Laodiceans, the church of our age today, perhaps even us, perhaps even myself, where <clears throat> what he dealt with with the Colossians is maybe something that I could learn from and, and uh, would deal, that he would deal with me on. So, chapter 1, in verse 1 and 2, he opens with his typical introduction of himself and his, his greetings of grace and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ to these people. He says then in verse 3 of chapter 1 in Colossians, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. You notice as he goes along here, you'll see that he is confident that these people are believers, that they really believe, they have faith, and it's demonstrated with their love for all the saints. So he's giving thanks for them. This, he's going to deal with some issues, but he's not dealing them with the sense that they are entire losers. He's giving thanks for them. He's glad for their faith, their love for the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, which is certainly what the church looks forward to today, the hope laid up for us in heaven, of which you heard of before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is in the whole world, and is bringing forth fruit as it also is among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So he's rejoicing in their common faith, the faith that he shares with them. And then in verse 9, he says, For this reason we also... Since the day we heard it, speaking of their salvation, we do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. 
I mean, what, he's praying that they would understand God's will with clarity, spiritual understanding. For this reason, in verse 20, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, and strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering and joy. So he's asking that they would be able to be pleasing to God, that they would know what he wants and that they would be able to do good works that are fruitful, that are beneficial, uh, and that they would increase in the knowledge of God and that they would have the ability to continue on in these things. They would be strengthened uh, for a long period of time, which I don't think he's praying about these things because the people of Colossae didn't have this desire. I think they very much, and, and you'll see why uh, later on, but it seems that they were very much interested in walking worthy of the Lord and being fully pleasing to him. That's what they wanted. So I think he's saying this to show that he wants the same thing that they want. And the reason he's bringing their attention to this is because their desire to walk fully pleasing to the Lord is what has led them into the problem and brought them to the point to where they say, we have need of nothing. It's kind of weird, but that seems to be what, as you follow through, you'll see what, you'll see what I mean, hopefully, if we get, get through it. So he's praying. He wants, he's, he, he wants to address an issue. He sees that the root of the issue is their desire to be pleasing to the Lord. He's not going to tell them you ought not to be pleasing to the Lord. He's going to tell them you ought to be pleasing to the Lord. This is a good desire. I'm on your side. I'm not against you. But then what he does, after talking about what he's praying that they would be able to do to be fruitful in every good work and all these different things, in verse 12, he turns from what they do and what they want and looks at God and what God has done. So it all changes now and he starts to focus on God. He said, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints of light. So this is something that God has done. He has made us qualified to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And then in verse 13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So these are things that God has done. Three things that he lists, that he mentions here, it seems to me, qualified us to be partakers and inheritance of saints of light, delivered us from the power of darkness, and then the redemption through his blood. And I think what he's doing here is he's he's drawing from the Old Testament, the, the, uh, the experience of the Hebrews when they left Egypt. They were delivered from the power of Pharaoh and brought into the kingdom of God, so to speak, in the wilderness. Sorry, first he talked about the inheritance. They were being brought out of Egypt to go into the inheritance of the promised land, the land that was promised to Abraham. They would inherit it as the people of God. And then they were delivered from the power of darkness, the power of Pharaoh, and brought into the kingdom of God in the wilderness, and they had the redemption. The, the, uh, the story of the Passover is referred to as a, a, uh, a redemption where God had redeemed them out of Egypt. So the three things he mentions correlates with the Israelites coming out of the land of, of Egypt. For the Israelites, when they came out of Egypt... When they got to the other side of the Red Sea, when they had been 
brought into God, when they've been brought out of Pharaoh's power and brought into the wilderness under God, when they were set on the way of, I keep on getting these things mixed up, when they, they were headed in the direction to receive their inheritance, when they had, when the redemption process was complete and they were there, I mean, it was, they looked back on the things that God had done. It wasn't for them a process where they had to move towards being redeemed or that they had to move towards being qualified to partake in the inheritance that they were headed towards or that they had to move out. It wasn't a process. It was a done deal. They were, they were on the other side of the Red Sea. And it seems like that's what Paul is drawing their attention to, these things that God not is doing, God has done. Things that correlate to our own, like we are taken from being uh, sinners. We are, he said, qualified. You, you may look at yourself and you may say, I don't qualify to be with the inheritance of the saints in life. Like me, who me, I struggle with my flesh on a daily basis. He's like, well, you don't understand. It doesn't have to do with you. God has qualified you to be partakers of the inheritance of saints in life. Uh, and I say, well, I, I'm struggling under this power of the darkness, you know, like this, I can't seem to walk in in the, the uh, purity of rightness of life. Like, I, And he's like, no, you don't understand. God has done this. He has taken you out from under the power of darkness. It's a done deal. The redemption is complete. So after then talking about what God has done, he then draws our attention to, uh, well, I almost mentioned too at the end of verse 14 that the key to all of this is the forgiveness of sins, that all these deliverance from the power of darkness, being qualified in the redemption, it's your sins are forgiven. And you, if you stop and think about it, like, if here I am in my sin, if my sins are forgiven, that qualifies me then to be partakers of the sins, saints of life. You know, it's, it makes sense. Paul is not making things up and drawing connections that shouldn't be. I mean, it all makes sense. Once your sins are forgiven, these things that God has done, I mean, that's, yeah, that's the basis. That's, that's the truth. So then he, he draws our attention then to Christ. In verse 15, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. So he paints this picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as one who is preeminent. He is over all. There is nobody who can rise up and challenge Christ to try to prove themselves as being to have supremacy over Christ. He is over all. It's, I mean, there's, is it? And that's the picture that he really paints here. And we could go through line by line and describe, you know, firstborn of all creation, how that he's over all creation. Then all things were created for him. Everything that we can see or touch or identify, everything that we in our experience, that we can experience is his for him. So there, there's nothing that can rise up and challenge him or, or take supremacy over him. I mean, like he's, he's everything. He's over all. And he's doing that on purpose. God has done these certain things that are done, this redemption this, that's tied with our salvation, different aspects of the salvation. He has done it through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is above all. 
And then he says in verse 19, he says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. By him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So now we come back to that idea of pleasing God. It pleased God that in him should all the fullness dwell. So it's, he, he's introducing, Paul is introducing a, uh, a little bit different perspective here. It's like the, the Laodicean church or the Colossians or whoever else, any other. The Laodiceans were wanting to be pleasing to God and they were striving to be pleasing to God. And Paul says, <laughs> nobody's going to have supremacy over Christ. He's the one that is pleasing to God. It's in him. And God's intent, by him, in verse 20, he was going to reconcile all things to himself. Everything that was ever opposed to him, ever opposed to God, enemies or whatever, they, they would be made at peace. The uh, what? Uh, so what he's... I should back up here. So just so we're clear on what reconcile means, that's what I'm trying to do is say it and explain reconciliation at the same time. It's not working very well. So reconciliation is when you have somebody who, for whatever reason, there's been an offense or you've done something, or you know, so that you're at odds with each other. One time you were maybe friends, maybe not, you know, whatever, but you're at odds, you're enemies, and there's no way that you can sit in the same room together or walk side by side or ride in the same car. So to reconcile is to remove all those differences and set them back, set the two parties back up so that they're friends. Right? So that if there is no offense between you anymore. So that's the idea. Is that he wants to take what is opposed, the people or the things that are opposed to God, reconcile to them. And what he's saying is that it's by Christ that this reconciliation is to be done. There is no enemy or anything that is opposed to God who will ever be able to find reconciliation in any other method than Christ. All things will be reconciled through him. You can't find that there's some offense between you and God and then put to work some work in your life and, and do some process or something or change your whatever and attain a reconciliation with God through your efforts or your performance. All things are reconciled through Christ. You're not going to find something else that can reconcile you or some other way or some other achievement. All things are reconciled through Christ. He's everything. He pleased God. And God has set him up for the reconciliation. And there's no other way. And so he says, and he reminds them in verse 21, you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled. So you know what he, Paul says, you know what I'm talking about. He's reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death, when he died on the cross, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in sight. So he's taken you from enemies in wicked works, enemies in your mind by wicked works, and he's going to bring you into the place of holy and blameless and above reproach in sight. This is the reconciliation he's talking about. From point A, wickedness in your mind, to point B, holy and blameless in his sight. That's the kind of reconciliation that Christ is 
to accomplish. It's not he's going to take you from your wicked works and he's going to bring you to point B and then you've got to achieve holiness and blamelessness through your works to get the rest away. It's he takes you from point A all the way to the end. That's the reconciliation that he's looking to do through the body of his flesh because of the forgiveness of sins. If, verse 23, if you indeed continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So he throws an if in there. He will present you holy and blameless if you continue in the faith. What does he mean by this, to continue in the faith? Grounded and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. So he tells us, you're not moved away. You continue the faith in the sense that you're not moved away from the hope that is in the gospel. And what hope is that? You remember when the gospel came to you, right? There you were in your guilt and your sin, and you feeling the burden, and the, you know, you, you see how bad you are, and then all of a sudden, this gospel comes along, and you realize, he can save me. And it's a, it's a glad hope, a glad thing to put your confidence in, a glad thing to rest in. He can save me. So Paul is saying, don't move away from that. Because if you move away from that, how are you going to enter into holy and blameless and above reproach? So if today I look at my life and I see that, oh boy, I am not blameless and I'm not holy and I'm not above reproach. Paul says, well, don't leave the hope of the gospel. He can save me. If you continue in that faith, if you recognize the reality of your own shortcomings and your own fall, you see your nakedness and your your poverty and reproach. You have need. You have need of that hope of the gospel. I'm guessing that the Laodiceans moved away from the hope of the gospel, moved on to something else. They were saved. They were glad they were saved. And then they progressed in their Christian life and moved on to other issues. And Paul is here to warn them against that. And what he does next, I really appreciate, is something that I don't fully uh, understand. In that, you know, look what he says. He says, verse 24, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me from you, for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery, which and I'll pause here for a second. He brings up his sufferings. And this is something that I've been kind of learning a bit. It's like, uh, sometimes you're placed in authority over somebody else. You know, like you're a boss and somebody's working for you. You have the right at any time to go over and rebuke them, correct them, and tell them what they're doing is wrong. But when you're working with somebody who's a, who you're not over, somebody is a friend, family, peer, whatever. What gives you the right to correct somebody? 
Sometimes we think as long as we see that they're doing something wrong and we know what's right, that gives us the right then to go correct them. Paul doesn't seem to take that approach. He says, look, I have suffered for you. The sufferings that I go through and have endured and agonized, I'm suffering for you. Like he's, he's qualifying himself to give them a rebuke. He says, look, I have, I mean, I have sacrificed and I have suffered for you. And so now these next things that I'm going to say, that's what Paul, it's like, so you know, sometimes you can't rebuke somebody until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Once you understand where they're coming from, then you can say, okay, I get where you're coming from, and you can say, but this needs to change. If you've been there, you've done that. Paul is using a little bit different approach. He's saying, oh, I've suffered for you. In my service for God, the things that I've been doing as a stewardship to benefit you, the mystery that he's been, the stewardship that he has. To, so a stewardship, somebody gave me a really good, uh, stu, uh, a good uh, definition of stewardship. He's like, you know, you see a waiter in a restaurant. They go and take the food that isn't theirs from the kitchen and give it to somebody who's a patron of the restaurant. Steward takes what isn't theirs and gives it to somebody else. And so he's saying, I'm a steward. Of this, in verse 26, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to the saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Their whole key to getting into glory is Christ. He's everything. Been set up as everything. He, or he is everything. He's been set up as a reconciliation. He's our hope. Him we preach and warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. I suffered for you to convey to you the reality of this truth of Christ in you, your hope of glory. Well, present every man perfect, yeah, but not perfect in their lifestyle, perfect in Christ, in their rest in Christ. <coughs> that brings us into chapter 2 where he says, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge, the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I have a great conflict. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be knit together in love. I want you to attain not the perfect lifestyle. He says, I want you to attain to all the riches it's interesting that the Laodicean church, he was talking about how you say you are rich, but you have nothing. We look at the church today, we say, yeah, the rich is, or the church is very rich in monetary things. But he's saying, these are riches are the ones that I want to draw your attention to. The riches of the full assurance. The full assurance of understanding Christ in you the perfection that is in Christ, the hope of the gospel. The, to really grab hold of that and to, I mean, he uses the word assurance, to rest 
init. The knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures, the wisdom and all the So it's not that he is trying to figure out how to make them become successful in their Christian life so that they don't struggle with the flesh anymore. What he's saying is that even though your flesh is there, you have full assurance in Christ. You rest in him. And he says then in verse 4, This I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Here's where you guys are starting to go astray. These are things that you're getting... You're getting fooled over. Though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. You have these things going for you. You're steadfast in your faith. You have good order. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted up and built in him, established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? Well, you were there in the guilt of your sin, and there came this message of the gospel, and you found out that he can save me. Walk in it. Every day you look at yourself and say, well, if, as I look at my life and how I did today, would I need the Lord to save me because of how I live today? You know what I mean? As I evaluate and measure myself, did I do good so that the Lord wouldn't have to save me? Or do I look at my life and I see that? And rejoice in that glad assurance that He can save me. Rooted up and built up in Him. Established in the faith as you've been taught, and abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, verse 8, beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not, not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Years ago, and I think there's still remnants of it today, there was an uh, uh, organization uh, headed up by a guy named Bill Gothard, and he was, <laughs> what he did was he put out uh, these, these books and these seminars that taught you how to live the Christian life. And the funny thing is, <laughs> is, his first book that you were supposed to study, book 101, was called Basic Life Principles, right? I find that ironic because Paul is saying that you could, you know, beware of these things lest you could see that, you know, according to the basic principles of the world. And he called his book Basic Life Principles. In the book, he taught you how to handle various situations. Like, and one that I remember was like, if you have done something to offend somebody else and what, or they kind of took offense at you, really. What you did was kind of minor, and they took big offense of it, at it, and now you've got this big rift between you. He said the way to resolve the relationship is you take ownership for all that you did. Even though you look at what you've done as just a little itty bit, and what they've done is really big, you take ownership of all you've done, 
and ignore what they've done, and you apologize for what you've done as a beginning process of healing the relationship. Would that work? Absolutely it would work. You take ownership of all you've done. Don't hold them accountable for what they've done, but you apologize for what you've done, and then more often than not, they will then concede that, yeah, maybe they've done something wrong too, and you begin the process of... Yeah, his principles that he laid out worked. They would give you the ability on how to live the Christian life. But they didn't work because it only worked at the surface. You, you would do these things that didn't reflect what you were on the inside, and so the kids would see it didn't work on the inside, and a lot of parents lost a lot of kids as they followed this from what I saw. Here's the deal. He was saying that in order to have a successful... The promise was you will have a successful Christian life, you'll raise your family, they will be good Christian kids, and you will keep your kids from getting lost to the world. That's what he promised, by following these basic life principles. You would achieve some kind of holiness and blamelessness and some kind of perfection of reconciliation between you and God by following these basic life principles. And Paul is saying, no. You don't... You achieve holiness, blamelessness, in Christ. You are complete in Him. In Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He has everything that it takes to bring you and present you as homeless, holy and blameless before God in love. No loose ends. He's got all that it takes. Everything is in Him. And then he goes on and talks about what you have in Christ. In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is a done deal. In him you were circumcised. And he's talking about, he's using the old practice of circumcision as a metaphor of cutting off the flesh. The flesh that we struggle with, all its passions, the desires, the sins, and so forth. He says, that's been cut off. And we say, well, wait a second here. I mean, I still struggle with the flesh. How is it cut off? I mean, I feel like I still have to suppress it. He's like, no, it's a done deal. This is something that Christ has done. And I don't know how exactly it makes sense of it. Like, Danielle and I were talking about the other day, and I was like, you know, it's kind of like being an orphan kid in an orphanage, and you're doing all the things that the orphan kid does in the orphanage, you know, mopping the floors and cleaning the bathrooms and everything else that they tell you to do. And somebody comes along and says, I want you as my kid. And you are, you are adopted. They sign the papers. But they don't take you home yet because they've got to prepare the house, get things ready. And you're at the orphanage, and it seems like you're an orphan. You still look like an orphan, but you're not. It's a done deal. The adoption is already done. You're just waiting until they come and pick you up. Kind of think kind of like that. It's a circumcision. We still struggle with the flesh, but it's a done deal. The flesh is cut off. He did, and then in verse 12, he says something very similar. You were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You have put off the old life. You're into the new life. You put off the life of death, and you're into the new life. But I still struggle with the old. No, it's a done deal in him. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, what he means by that is you lived in your sin and you were miles apart from God. The life that you lived had no correlation with the life of God. 
He is God, holiness, righteousness. You live in your sin. Two different lives. You were dead to him in your trespass and sin. He has made, God has made alive. You being dead in your trespasses, uncircumcision in your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. goes back to that forgiveness thing. Now you're alive with God. Your life does, I mean, it, it's, it's there in God's life. It's not separate lives now. You live with God because sins are forgiven. And he did it in such a way. It's not just that he said, well, I forgive you. But in verse 14, he's having he's wiped out the handwriting, the requirements that is against us, which was contrary to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. In other words, all the principalities and powers that he created that he referenced back in chapter 1, they cannot bring an accusation against you before God. They have no grounds, any grounds that they would have to stand on to say this guy has is worthy of condemnation. Any grounds to stand and say that has been taken away. The handwriting and requirements has been removed, nailed to his cross because of his death on the cross. No principality or power can stand up and legitimately say this man should be condemned. That's what he's done. Not what he's doing or is in the process of accomplishing, it's done. So then he gets down to it in verse 16. Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding festival or new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come with the substances of Christ. So he's talking about the Jewish festivals and so forth. He says, don't let anybody judge you in that. That's... Uh, and he goes on, he says, let, one, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding on those things in which he has not seen and vainly puffed up in his flesh mind. You know, they come up with all kinds of different ideas on how you can be a great and mighty Christian man of God. They're cheating you of your reward if you try to follow that kind of stuff. Not holding fast to the head from whom the whole the body nourished and knit together by the joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. What you're going to find is that a believer is nourished and encouraged and edified when they are their memory is refreshed in the mercy that we find in God, in the reality of the salvation that we have in him, and the realization that despite who I am, he can and does save me. That nourishes, that encourages, and that edifies he said, they're not holding fast the head. They're cutting you off from that nourishment, that edification. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with, use, with using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These, these are different ideas that people have. They come up with these principles and if you follow them, you become a greater and more mature Christian. They call them principles because they're not direct commands. They're inferred in the Bible. There's a little passage in the Bible that kind of references some kind of idea that says, yeah, this is what we ought to do then. I mean, this, this implies what God wants, so we ought to do it. And they call them biblical principles because they can't call them commands. And we do it today. 
How many times will somebody come up and say, this is what you have to do? It's not a command, but it is a principle in the Bible. And if you do this thing, then you'll be pleasing to God. And Paul's here to say, no, it's Christ that's pleasing to God. Find your full assurance of the understanding resting in him. These things, he says in verse 23, these things, these principles, they have an appearance of wisdom. They, they, look, they look good. In self-imposed religion, false humility, neglect of the bad body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. They will not curb the desires of your flesh. They don't. Might suppress your flesh. They don't cure it. So if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. It's like Paul is saying, look, you're trying to achieve perfection here on earth. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'm going to college. I could try to achieve perfection in college. Once I get a job, none of my clients care what I did in college. It doesn't mean it's... <laughs> I mean, what I did in college was important, yes, but nobody cares. The fact that I only got 3.2 on my GPA. Nobody cares anymore. That's how I do my job now. It's almost like Paul is saying that. Look, you can achieve perfection here on earth. But this is like school. Where Christ is, that's where it really matters. Are you in him? Set your mind on things above, not on things in the earth. For you died. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, appears... You also will appear with him in glory. Then he gives us the commands. This is what you're supposed to do. Put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire. I mean, look at the list. It's not, these are not obscure, uh, subtle things on how you ought to live. These are straightforward, immoral practices that you ought not to do. Things that, these, these are what really displeases God. It's not, he doesn't list things regarding biblical principles, things implied in the Bible that we ought to be following, and if you don't follow me, displease God. He doesn't list those kinds of things. These are full of straight out immoral actions. And then he talks in verse 8, he gives us another list. These are different practices. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy. You know, be polite to one another. And he tells us what to do. He says in uh, verse 12, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, lion. This is hard work to do this kind of stuff, especially depending on the kind of people you work with, but this is what he calls you to do. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Full assurance of understanding in Christ to which you were also called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. That word of the gospel, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Whatever you do in word or do, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then he talks about how you ought to do different things, different relationships, husband, wife, father, children, boss, employee, and just the basic what God is looking for.
So the church today, do we have a problem? Do we, uh, in our zeal to try to be pleasing to God, leave the hope of the gospel and think that we please God because we have achieved a certain level of what we're shooting for, you know, some kind of level of perfection, like I've done good today, so therefore I please God, or I haven't done good today, so I don't please God. And I'd be like, yeah, that kind of hits the nail on the head. And Paul is calling me to say, no, you know, get to the end of the day, and I look back and say, did did I need to be saved today? Did you earn your salvation today? And is it still true that he saved me? Attain to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding the knowledge of the mystery of God, both Father and of Christ. The full assurance of understanding what he has done for you. Father, we just thank you again for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he's the everything. There's all came from him and is so far above all fully pleasing to you. We do pray that you would teach us to rest in him and know that he's got all those sins covered. To rejoice in the fullness of the riches of his mercy. The truth tried by fire is mercy towards us. The white garments of the righteousness in him, from him, open our eyes that we might see and rest in the full assurance of what he has done for us. And may your peace rule in our hearts. Jesus, amen.